Hey, Outcomes Rocket friends. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast once again. As a leader in healthcare, you have big ideas, great products, a story to tell, and are looking for ways to improve your reach and scale your business. However, there's one tiny problem. Healthcare is tough to navigate and the typical sales cycle is slow. That's why you should consider starting your own podcast as part of your sales and marketing strategy. At the Outcomes Rocket, I've been able to reach thousands of people every single month that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to reach if I had not started my podcast. Having this organic reach enables me to get the feedback necessary to create a podcast that delivers value that you are looking for. And the same thing goes if you start a podcast for what you could learn from your customers. The best thing about podcasting in healthcare is that we're currently at the ground level, meaning that the number of people in healthcare listening to podcasts is small but growing rapidly. I put together a free checklist for you to check out the steps on what it takes to create your own podcast. You could find that at outcomesrocket.health slash podcast. Check it out today and find a new way to leverage the sales, marketing, and outcomes of your business. That's outcomesrocket.health slash podcast. Welcome back to the show. And today I have an outstanding guest. His name is Abner Mason. He's the founder and CEO at Consejo Sano, the only patient engagement and care navigation solution designed to help clients activate their multicultural patient populations to better engage with the healthcare system. As you all know, this population healthcare approach is so important, especially as the demographics of our country change. Consejo Sano's clients are typically health plans and provider groups serving Medicaid and Medicare Advantage members and patient populations. So the work that Abner's doing is fascinating. Currently, he's the CEO there, but previously he served as founder and CEO of the Workplace Wellness Council of Mexico. They provide members companies with access to cutting-edge workplace wellness programs in a form of best practices. He's done a lot He was appointed by U.S. President George Bush to the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV and AIDS. He's done a lot of things with other states as well. So it's a pleasure to welcome Abner to the podcast to hear his story and the work that they do at Consejo Sano. Abner, welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Al. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, my friend. So did I miss anything in your bio that you want to share with the listeners? No, only that I, I, I did do uh, a stint in state government. So I have had oh, the experience nice. of working on the, uh, on the government side, so, which has its own unique uh, challenges. So uh, I always like to remind people that I have done my, my duty on the government side. <laughs> hey, man, that's important, right? Because yeah. a big part of the payer is government. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Oh, I was chief policy advisor for... Uh, two uh, governors in Massachusetts, and also worked in a couple of their agencies in state government. So I know the I've got a feel for the cadence of state government and government in general, and state government in particular. And the cadence is slow. <laughs> so <laughs> now that I'm on the other side, and I'm trying to frequently uh, work with governments, it's experiencing it. I'm realizing just how slow government is. And that's one of the things we need to change. Love it, man. Love it. Totally agree with that. So, what would you say? is the reason you got into the medical sector. What got you in, man? I was a bit of an accident. I was, uh, as I said, chief policy advisor for 
the governor in Massachusetts, and my background had really been in transportation. I had been okay. deputy uh, secretary of transportation for Massachusetts and uh, deputy uh, AG for the uh, transit authority in Massachusetts. So I had I had a lot of experience on the transit side, and then I started to uh, work on the highway side as well. But then the governor asked me to come to the governor's office to be chief policy advisor, and in that role, I had to learn about other parts of government beyond transportation, including education, the environment, all the other sectors of, of government. And around that time, I was asked to join the Advisory Council on HIV and AIDS. And that's really what got me into healthcare. because when I joined the Advisory Council on HIV and AIDS, I realized the challenge that HIV posed both domestically and internationally. And they were good enough to appoint me chairman of the International Subcommittee. So I was responsible for helping uh, develop recommendations for the president, the secretary of state and the secretary of health on what the U.S. should do with respect to AIDS globally. And that just opened my eyes to the importance of healthcare, but also to uh, the importance of tackling big challenges in healthcare. And I learned a lot in that experience. And so that led me down the path of doing more and more in healthcare. Man, what a winding path. But you know what? It's oftentimes when you get thrown into these situations that you're you're forced to grow. And, and then you, you all of a sudden, like when you least expect it, you just sort of find your love for healthcare. And I think it's so cool that, that you happened upon it like this. Yeah, it was not, uh, you know, a plan. That's for sure. The <laughs> winding road yeah. that led me here. But once I sort of dug into healthcare, it's a fascinating area. As you know, it's got amazing challenges, but you can really at the end of the day, know that if you are effective, you're really improving people's lives. And so that's a great incentive. I agree completely. So improving people's lives is key. And I think a reason why a lot of people stay despite the challenges in healthcare, what would you say, Abner, is a hot topic that needs to be on every medical leader's agenda? And how are you and your team at Consejo Sano addressing this? Well, obviously, I'm, I'm prefaced this by saying I'm biased. <laughs> so <laughs> what I think is a hot topic, and certainly what we focus on here, is trying to make sure that we find ways to connect healthcare to what is becoming the majority of Americans. Uh, mm-hmm. So let me take a, a step back and explain and, and share my thinking on that. The country has changed uh, demographically quite dramatically over the last few decades, and we're on our way to becoming a majority-minority country. The, according to the U.S. Census, we'll reach that status as a country in 2050, majority-minority. So how do you define that? What does that, what does that mean? So that means that basically, if you add up the groups that are non-traditional white American, yes. as you add up the populations of those groups, they constitute a majority. So, gotcha. um, okay, so got you it. take uh, Hispanics and African-Americans and Asians and Arabic folks and add up all of those, what we would traditionally call minority groups, broadly speaking, if you add them up, they will constitute a majority. Okay. And that's a dramatic demographic change that has occurred and is occurring over the last you know, three, four decades. So the, according to the census, the whole country will be majority minority by 2050. Some states, you know, like where I am in California, we are already a majority minority state. If you take Hispanics, who are 40% of the population here, and add to that uh, Chinese and African Americans and the other minority groups, those groups compose a majority in California today. The same thing is true in Texas today. Texas is a majority minority state. So this is a huge demographic change. Yeah. And it is a change that Let's face it, it's not easy. If you look at much right. of our national politics today, 
a lot of what you hear and see and read in our national politics reflects the struggle to accept this demographic change. It's hard. And it has created a lot of stresses in certain sectors of, of the economy and, and of society. I think, though, in healthcare, for those of us who are in healthcare, we have to accept that this change has happened. This is the America that we have become, and it's the America that we are continuing to become. The idea that we can reverse this is just not possible. Right. So people in healthcare have to accept that we are a very multicultural country and becoming more so. That's the first thing we have to accept. And then the second thing is that healthcare in America has not kept up at all with that demographic change. Mm-hmm. Our healthcare system is just not equipped to serve the America that we have become. And that needs to change. Like in California, I'll give you just a, a quick yeah. statistic. California is 40%, 40% Hispanic, right? Yeah. Only 5% of doctors speak Spanish. And speaking Spanish is not even the goal here because what really is important is not just speaking the language, but it's understanding the culture so that we can engage with these patients. So So to answer your question, the big challenge here is how do we begin to make the changes so that our healthcare system can engage with, because if you don't engage with people, you're not going to get good health outcomes. If you can't get people to trust you, to come in for appointments, to tell you the truth when they come in, you got to get, you got to reach out to them. You got to get them to come in. You got to get them to tell you the truth. You got to get them to engage in a uh, dialogue with you as a healthcare provider or the healthcare system, you know, writ large. We've got to engage with people. And if we don't, we're going to get terrible outcomes. And that's what's happening now. And I think it will get worse if we don't begin to figure out ways to engage with the people that the healthcare system has to serve. And that engagement is not about language, it's about culture. It's about connecting with people as who they are understanding who they are and building trust. And hopefully over time, that trust leads to Hmm. a deeper level of engagement. So people say, okay, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to come in. I'm going to have a relationship with a primary, for example, a primary care provider. I'm going to listen to my primary care provider. I'm going to start to think about my health in a more holistic way. So all of these things are, are important for us going forward. And I think that if we don't start to get some of that right, a lot of the other good things we're doing in healthcare are not going to bear fruit because we won't have the engagement that we need that's sort of the fundamental requirement. Abner, I think this is very insightful and I like what you've done here. Typically, we find ourselves stuck, not necessarily stuck, but reflecting on things that matter in healthcare, but you've taken a step back and you've forced us, like the listeners, me, to not just think about healthcare, but to reflect on the population of the U.S. and take a look at it and how that affects healthcare. So looking from the outside in, folks, it's so important that we don't get stuck in the trenches like we do. I mean, we do that. We're, we're guilty of it. Nothing wrong with it. But let's step back and start looking at the changes of the demographics that are happening in this country. And that's why today, with the discussion we're having with Abner, this will be a great way to sort of get you to start thinking about what you're going to do differently to best adapt to these changes so you could better serve your communities, you could better serve your patients. So give us an example, Abner, of how you and your organization have created results by doing things differently. 
Sure. So one of the things we realized pretty early is that to uh, get engagement, we were going to have to do things differently to get mm-hmm. engagement with these multicultural populations who aren't engaged. So, uh, and we looked to see, well, what's happening now? And it's not as though healthcare providers across the country, stakeholders, you know, plans and provider groups, it's not as though they don't know that this demographic change is happening. And so many of them have taken a step to start to address it. And what we call it is sort of multicultural patient engagement 1.0, right? So, and what that is, is it's translation. Mm-hmm. Basically, healthcare providers across the country, if you, wherever you go, basically what they do is they take content that was designed and written for a more traditional sort of English-speaking American who grew up in an English-speaking environment. They take content written for that person and they translate it into other languages. And that 1.0 version doesn't work for a couple of reasons. One, to engage with people, you've got to connect with them. You've got to figure out a way to build a bridge to them, to connect with them. And when you send content that was written for person A, whose life experience, whose, whose uh, understanding of healthcare, whose experience with healthcare, whose experience with you know, life in America is completely different, completely yeah. different from person B, but you send the message intended for person A to person B, you just sort of translate it, sometimes poorly using like a, you know, some sort of Google Translate, you get really bad results and you don't get engagement. And you get even less person, connection, right? Exactly. Arguably. You re- really raise a good point, Saul. Even though it's well-intended sometimes because plans are, you know, in provider groups and they're trying to reach out, sometimes it's not that well-intended. They're just checking the box. It's just a regulatory requirement. In a lot of places in America, in order to, to uh, comply with the, the law, you have to offer your services in these languages. And so they, to check the box, they just hard translate and they're checking the box. So really there isn't a real intent to connect with these people. They're just checking a regulatory box. But even sometimes there is a good intent. They're trying. But here's what happens. If you've ever been a member of a minority group and you've been treated unequally or Mm -hmm. you have been made to feel invisible or you've been made to feel like who you are really doesn't matter. And sometimes you've just been outright discriminated against. If you've ever been in that in a person who, who belongs to a group and experienced that, what happens over time is you develop a very keen awareness of when people are being sincere and reaching out to you because they really want to know who you are. They really want to connect with you and they really value you as a person versus checking the box. It's like this antenna that these folks have. And even if it's well-intended, if you send a check the box message, that's really a content written for someone else that you're just checking the box, it can have a, a negative effect. It's, mm-hmm. it's actually worse than doing nothing because yeah. what it says to the person receiving it is, you really don't care who I am. You really don't care to learn about me. You, you're making no effort whatsoever to connect with me. And what that does is it builds distrust. It can also make people not like you very much. And if you treat people that way, like they don't matter and who they are is not important, it's no wonder they don't want to kind of engage with you. So I think we've got to get away from that 1.0 version of engagement. And so what we're suggesting at Conseil Sano, what we're doing is what we call 2.0. We're saying we've got to take it to the next level. And that is, we don't think translation works. You have to start instead with culture. We have to figure out who these people are and what they care about, what they believe, what they hope for, what they fear, where they live, where they come from, what their experiences are in daily life, trying to get a better feel for the whole person, who they are. And 
we call that culture, to yes. use a term that encapsulates all of it. We try to understand who people are culturally. So we start there. Then we design content based on the culture. So we don't design content. You know, we don't send a message to an Arabic speaker, a young Arabic mom. She may be uh, low uh, on Medi Medicaid. We don't send a message to her. That's the same message we would send to English-speaking mom of the same age who has grown up in the U.S. culture. Uh, not only is the language different, but the content itself is different because of the way that that Arabic mom understands life in America, what she experiences, the way she understands healthcare, the way her culture has weaved in an understanding of healthcare with the American experience. It's even unique. It's not even as though yeah. it's the same as if she lived in her home country. There's a, a wonderful, I think, kind of thing that happens when these cultures hit American culture and, the, and a third new thing gets created. So we're trying to connect with people on that level. So it's first that. culture, then we design the content, then we layer in the language. So see, language for, mm -hmm. in our view, is language is the tool. It's not, it doesn't tell you anything about what you should communicate. It's a tool to communicate. Yes. So language is actually the third thing. It's not even the most important <laughs> thing. It's, it's first culture, then content, then language. And then the fourth thing that's really important is mode of communication. Healthcare in America is still stuck in the 30 years ago. Today, I am guarantee it's true for oh, you. So you mean you shouldn't fax these people? You should, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy that it's 2018, right? And you can't send a text message. To, oh. Everybody communicates via text message. Everyone in America. This is the way we communicate now. And mm -hmm. yet in healthcare, we can't do that. I was at a conference two weeks ago in yeah. San Diego. It was a conference of regional health plans. There were 27 re plans from across the country. These are pretty large health plans, regional plans from across the country, 27. I was giving a talk and I said, how many of you primarily communicate via text message with your family and your friends? Everyone raised their hands. I said, yep. how many of you communicate with your members for you know, population health management or chronic disease management or just general engagement? Not one hand went up. Yeah. Not one. This is yeah. 2018. Mm -hmm. It's as though... Not even one? <laughs> not one. It, you oh, know, wow. I, I jokingly say, you guys may as well be using Morse code to, to communicate <laughs> with your members because it's snail mail and email. And I mean, yeah. they're, they're stuck in these old modalities, communication modalities. That's not the way people communicate today. So I'll stop there. But it gives you a sense of how we are trying to uh, change the way we, we approach engagement and what we're getting is incredible results. Because it turns out when you respect people enough to connect with them as who they are and treat them like they actually have value as a person, they belong, they, they are someone, they, they come from somewhere, they have a history and you know, they have hopes and dreams. You treat, if you treat them that way and you are willing to communicate with them in a way that they want to communicate as opposed to the way we want to communicate, you know, the mode, yes. you can get good results. Love it. I think it's great. Definitely want to dive into these results that you're discussing, Abner. When I was in, in college, one of my favorite classes was anthropology. I just, uh, I loved anthropology. It was one of my favorite, favorite classes. Maybe my instructor was cool, but you know, it was just so intriguing to hear about different cultures and, and to learn the different theories and I just think about what you and what you, your team does. You guys are like the healthcare anthropologists. 
that's really cool. <laughs> <I love that. laughs> and you could help people understand and communicate and in effect, get the outcomes that we're looking for. So the healthcare anthropologist right here on the line with Abner, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. Hey, Abner. So, so I definitely want to understand more about the types of results you guys are getting. But before we talk about that, I'd like to learn a little bit more about setbacks. Like, can you share one of the setbacks that you had, whether it be with uh, Consejo Sano or something else in your career that gave you a pearl that because of it, you, you never do things any different because of that. So can you highlight a setback and what you learned from it? Sure. So when I first had the idea to create Consejo Sano, which means healthy advice in Spanish, mm-hmm. it came from, I was doing work in Mexico. As you know, I, my previous company was a corporate wellness company in Mexico. And so I saw that there were a lot of amazing things happening in Mexico in healthcare, particularly using digital and the mobile phone. Mexico is a emerging a growth economy. You had a growing middle class looking for solutions that were affordable and convenient and confidential and obviously high quality, but that were you know, cost effective. And telemedicine was growing in, in Mexico faster even than in the U.S. at that point because they didn't have a lot of the legacy issues that restrain telemedicine growth in the U.S. You know, in the U.S., we have these practice of medicine regulations. Each state, you couldn't have a national solution. You could not have for a while a national player in telemedicine because it made it very difficult because of these state practice of medicine regulations where you, a doctor had to be licensed in the state where the patient was. So some of that's changing now in the U.S. And so telemedicine, I think, is a big part of the future in the U.S., right? But this was like five years ago, eight years ago, I saw in Mexico that it was growing really fast. And there, they didn't have those legacy issues. You could have one license for the whole country and you had a growing middle class looking for, and they didn't, solutions, and they didn't have a lot of the infrastructure either. They, so, you know, they, their healthcare system wasn't as advanced. So in a sense, they were able to leapfrog, yeah. jump to something new because they didn't have some of the older legacy stuff in the way. So I saw that and I thought, this is amazing. You've got a gr- middle class middle and upper middle class Mexicans using yeah. telemedicine for healthcare. And I thought if we could, and I met one of the largest telemedicine companies in Mexico, I got to know them. They have an incredible service. And I had this idea in the U.S., you have very few doctors and providers who speak Spanish, right? So yeah. if I could connect with a mobile hmm. phone, Hispanics in the U.S., with this call center, the, the telemedicine company in Mexico, they had a huge call center in Mexico City that was serving the whole country, incredible quality, fantastic operation. McKinsey and company did a study called them a world-class telemedicine solution. So hmm. really high quality. That's so here's cool. my idea. I said, I'm going to connect Spanish speakers in the U.S., low-income Spanish speakers in the U.S. with these doctors in Mexico by mobile phone. You could tap your phone anywhere in the U.S. and you'd be connected in 10 seconds to a doctor in Mexico who is at, in Mexico treating upper middle, class, upper middle and upper middle class uh, consumers. So it was a great way to provide a beautiful service to low income uh, Hispanics in the US who yeah. preferred to talk to a Spanish speaker. Great idea, right? Yeah. I thought it was. And I, I ran. <laughs> it was a great idea, I, but I ran into the buzzsaw of you know, the regulatory requirements in the U.S., it's very difficult. The part of the population that I wanted to serve in the, in the U.S. was low-income Hispanics. Most of them are on Medicaid. That's a state, federal, a government program, and they have very strict requirements about using offshore resources. So the bottom line here is, despite mm. the fact that we have 
a huge supply and demand problem in the U.S. There's no supply for the growing population of Spanish speakers in the U.S. who just want to talk to a doctor in a telemedicine type visit, even though the huge demand in the U.S. but no supply, huge supply just across the border in Mexico (laughs) that we could tap into. The requirements around regulations wouldn't allow it. And so that idea of mine failed. Great idea. But the lesson I drew from it was that great ideas are frequently all about timing. I still believe that at some point in the future, we're going to realize that it's crazy not to allow Spanish speakers in the the U.S. to be able to talk to doctors who they want to talk to, who they're comfortable with just by tapping their phone. And it's yeah. just across the border. The only thing separating us is just, you know, is a, is a border that signals don't, don't recognize. You can, you can call anytime. At some point in the future, my idea, I think, will, will become a real. <laughs> Somebody's going to make it work. It, won't, it wasn't me. I was too early. So the, it failed that idea. But it taught me a lot about timing is everything, or almost everything. That's Great fascinating. At the wrong time, still won't work. I love it. What a great story and a great lesson and also a, a very fun one uh, that <laughs> yeah. you tell it humorously, but I'm sure it was painful when you were going through it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think it's great. I mean, and I love that you kind of left it open-ended there because, you know, it is timing. Maybe one day it will work if we form some sort of formal group that you have to be accredited to be a part of and very well-defined guidelines. I think there, there could be a way. Well, you know, just as an example, just like we can't now use offshore resources, four or five years ago, it was hard for companies in the U.S. to telemedicine companies to serve different states across the country because of these, these state practice of medicine regulations that really, you know, made it hard to, for a doctor who's licensed in one state to serve other Americans in other states who want to talk to that doctor because he's not licensed in their state. And so that's getting solved slowly but surely. You know, the law is changing. That's a legacy issue from the way healthcare and medicine, you know, developed in the U.S. But slowly but surely, technology is forcing the laws and the regulations to change. So you're right. So eventually, first we'll have to make it so that it'd be easy to do telemedicine across the U.S. And then maybe we'll be able to do it. (laughs) Okay. With uh, maybe someday it'll be part of a new NAFTA, right? We'll be able to include it in maybe a a renegotiated NAFTA some years from now. Yes. That's that's the way I think it should happen. I love (laughs) that, man. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? I mean, and a big part of what what we do with the podcast, Abner and and listeners, as you well know, is just we connect silos and, and even like at the state level. It's just so siloed. Sharing best practices, talking about what could happen is the way that things do happen. So I, I think it's great. So tell us back to the results, right? So so you guys bring forth your cultural paradigm. The You help your clients understand how to message, when to message, and then you do the translation, which is kind of on the back end. What are the results? Tell us about those results and maybe one of your most proud leadership experiences from those results. Sure. So the key for, you know, what I described and how we work, you know, culture first, then content, then language, then the mode of communication. Anyone who, who hears it the first time says, geez, man, that's hard. <laughs> and on a certain level, it is, right? And so what we know is that we can't do that at scale without technology. That the mm-hmm. only way to do that at scale so that we're serving not a thousand people, but more like 10 million or people, we've got to build the technology that allows us to do that at scale. So our clients are typically managed Medicaid plans or provider groups serving Medicaid populations. We're a for-profit, but we do have a, a social mission. We're very focused on trying to make sure that people at the 
low end of the income ladder, get access to high quality healthcare. And so yes. we are building the technology that allows us to, a platform and a technology allows us to learn as we go. Um, so what we do when we get a client, we start to do a deep dive into who that membership is, whether it's a group of patients or members of a plan. We micro-segment, we use publicly available data, we use data from the clients, so health plan data. We put all that together and we develop what we call a, a community detailing, we implement a community detailing process and we, we micro-segment all of those members or patients into different groups based on some algorithms that we've developed. And then we start to develop content messages for them based on what we've learned about where they come from, who they are, what they believe. We do a lot of A-B testing initially to make sure we, we're getting it right. And then we start to communicate with them. We have a lot of success with text messaging. So the mobile environment is very powerful, but it's not text messaging as you think of it, just a text. We can send the text message with a link to a PDF, a text message with a link to an audio file. We can do uh, health risk assessments and other kinds of surveys via text message. So the mobile environment is very powerful and every communication that we make is two-way and it's recorded. And through machine learning and natural language processing, we're figuring out every time we interact with a, with a patient or a member more about them so that we can then tailor the next message so that it is designed to connect with them even more. We're trying to, in effect, use technology to create an experience for them, a communication, an exchange, a conversation that sounds like it's a human being. And so doing that, and we're building, you know, we're early stage, you know, we don't have all the answers. Right. <laughs> we're still building, but we are finding that we get incredibly a good results. So for instance, one of the big areas our clients care a lot about is clinical quality measures like HEDIS. In the mm -hmm. Medicaid space, there are these measures. So an example is babies, from the time they're born to the time they're two years old, they need 10 vaccinations. Okay. Um, that's required by Medicaid. And you can't give all the vaccinations at once. It takes a couple of visits. And so getting these multicultural populations, these moms or dads who are responsible for the baby, to understand they need to come in for these vaccinations, they're going to bring the baby in and get them to come in, is hard. And so the yeah. plans are required to get a certain percentage of these folks to come in. And the plan doesn't, the Medicaid plan, they're penalized. And so they mm -hmm. come to us and they say, look, help us reach out to these folks. And so we use our platform and our understanding to reach out. And we're getting some cases with what we call never scenes, we're getting 60, 70% of people who are responding to us who Huge. through all the other efforts by the plan previously, they, they wouldn't respond. So not only are we getting them to, you know, there's a process here because these are low income people, right? They're Medicaid, they struggle with life. And so if you're struggling to pay the rent, keep a roof over your head, a vaccination or immunization may not be your priority. And so we've got to figure out a way to convince that person that it's important and then help lower the barriers to get them to come in. So we do everything in addition to explaining to them that they should come in, building a trusted relationship so they'll listen to us. We, sometimes we schedule the appointment. We do the appointment reminder. We actually just signed a deal with Lyft so that we're going to be starting working with Lyft so that if one of the barriers is transportation, we can incorporate that into our offering so that we can get that person to the clinic. So our goal is to reduce the friction and to lower the barriers so that as we build a trusted relationship, we can navigate that person in to care. Love that. I think it's great. And kudos to you and your team for those results. It's important. It's a fragile population. And hey, for the plans, they got to meet those objectives. So why not partner with somebody that knows how to do it? So if you're a plan, somebody from a plan listening to this or, or even a provider 
take into consideration the things that we're talking about. And uh, Consejo Sano is, is a fantastic partner to consider. So uh, with the uh, podcast notes, you'll be able to find everything there, including a link and best way to contact Abner. Just go to outcomesrocket.health slash Abner, A-B-N-E-R. You'll find all that there. Getting close to the end here, Abner, tell us about an exciting project that you're focused on today. Sure. I'd say one is the Lyft partnership. We just announced that two weeks ago. Um, yeah, congrats on it's that. A, it's a great opportunity for us to demonstrate that a on-demand a non-emergency transportation benefit incorporated into you know, a Medicaid or Medicare Advantage offering can really drive better results. And so I'm really excited about that, in part because I think a lot of people forget who are in leadership positions in healthcare if you take a day off or you need to go to the doctor, take a kid to the doctor, you're going to get paid. But for hourly workers going in for a preventive visit, like a vaccination or a well-child visit, you don't get paid because they're hourly. And if you're living paycheck to paycheck, if you don't have transportation, for example, and it takes two buses and that's about you know hour and a half, two hours to get there, then you're at the doctor an hour and then two hours to get back. You know, you're talking five hours. That person, that that mom or that dad, or that grandmother, who's ever responsible for that child, it's not that they don't care about the child. They're mm-hmm. just trying to balance. If I take five hours off, number one, I might get fired. Or number two, yeah. even if I don't get fired, I can't make the rent or I can't buy food. If we could make that five-hour visit more like two hours, because a lift uh, on-demand transportation benefit, we can get that mom to the doctor in 30 minutes or less, the appointments an hour and get her back two hours. She then makes a calculation that we would all make a financial thing. I can afford to take two hours off or I'm allowed my, you know, I'm not going to get fired, but I can't take five or six. Yeah. So what it does is it drives visits. It's good for the clinic because the clinics obviously don't like no shows. And if her, if maybe she had a ride and it fell through or whatever, if we can have a, in the moment, what I mean, and this is what I mean by using new technology and these new offerings like Lyft, which has an on-demand service, it can be there in five minutes, not the old transportation benefit where you had to do, you know, schedule a week in advance and it was a, a yep. van that came around and picked up you and five other people. That's not what people want or expect work. today. Yep. Right. And so I'm really excited. I, I'm grateful to Lyft. I think they are thinking really smartly about, you know, how they can use their, their amazing company they built and service they built to improve health outcomes for low-income people. So I'm excited about that part. That's awesome. Yeah, congratulations. I know Lyft is working really hard to up their healthcare efforts. And uh, thanks to partners like you who are in the thick of it, you'll be able to to make it easier for people that actually need it. So uh, congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're excited about it. Abner, so this part of the podcast is right before we conclude, we build a leadership course, uh, what it takes to be successful in the business of medicine, the 101 of Abner. And so I've got four questions, lightning round style for you, followed by a book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? Sure. All right. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? To make sure that the solutions are designed to meet the needs of all patients, not just some. What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? I think that technology alone will solve problems in healthcare. There, there always has to be a human component there. And if you, if you forget that, it's a mistake. Love that. How do you stay relevant despite constant change? I think you really have to have a pulse, uh, you know, your thumb on innovation in your space. It's not enough just to be doing good today because disruption comes fast and furious. And so 
you need to be, you know, using current things well, but you got to have a, a, your thumb on what's happening in your space in terms of innovation. Who's innovating? Who's got new ideas? And you should be testing them all with trying new things. Love it. What's one area of focus that drives everything in a health organization or at least your organization? I think outcomes. I think we've got to have to get away from the idea that efforts are important. The truth is in healthcare, what really matters are outcomes. And we sometimes confuse efforts with results. So maybe I should say, put it this way, we should not confuse efforts with results. We need to focus on results, which means healthcare outcomes. And no matter what the efforts are, if they aren't producing the results or the outcomes we want, we've got to switch it up. Amen. And what book would you recommend, Abner? It's an old book, but it was important to me. Uh, It's by a philosopher named Karl Popper. He was a a philosopher of science guy. Um, It's called Conjections and Refutations. And it's a great book uh, that teaches you a lot about humility in science. And I think that's a good thing to learn about. Outstanding. What a great book recommendation. And how about any favorite podcasts? If not, no worries. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But any any other ones that stick out or, or just stick with the book? I'll stick with the book and your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You're too kind. You're too kind. I appreciate that. Folks, uh, for links to all of the things that that Abner has shared with us, including a link to Consejo Sano, all the things that they offer, their solutions, latest events that they've got going on, go to outcomesrocket.health slash Abner. And you're going to find that along with a full transcript of our conversation today. So Abner, this has been a ton of fun. I'd love if you could just share a closing thought and then the best place where the listeners could get in touch with you. Sure. This is my email. It's abner.mason at consejosano.com. And I'm sure you can put it up on the site. Put it on the notes. And uh, closing remark is just uh, thank you, Saul, for allowing uh, people like me to share our thoughts. You know, I think you're right that we can learn a lot from each other if we take the time and, and, and we now have these modalities like podcasts that allow us to stop a minute and listen to other people's stories and other people's experiences. And we can learn from that. So this is a lot of fun, but I think it's important work too. So I thank you for doing it. Hey, it's a pleasure, Abner, and uh, appreciate all that you and your team are doing to make healthcare better and uh, improve access. So keep up the awesome work. Great. Thanks a lot. Hey, Outcomes Rocket friends. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast once again. As a leader in healthcare, you have big ideas, great products, a story to tell, and are looking for ways to improve your reach and scale your business. However, there's one tiny problem. Healthcare is tough to navigate and the typical sales cycle is slow. That's why you should consider starting your own podcast as part of your sales and marketing strategy. At the Outcomes Rocket, I've been able to reach thousands of people every single month that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to reach if I had not started my podcast. Having this organic reach enables me to get the feedback necessary to create a podcast that delivers value that you are looking for. And the same thing goes if you start a podcast for what you could learn from your customers. The best thing about podcasting in healthcare is that we're currently at the ground level, meaning that the number of people in healthcare listening to podcasts is small but growing rapidly. I put together a free checklist for you to check out the steps on what it takes to create your own podcast. You could find that at outcomesrocket.health slash podcast. Check it out today and find a new way to leverage the sales, marketing, and outcomes of your business. That's outcomesrocket.health slash podcast.